All right, welcome to Sedaris. Merry Christmas. My name is Dave. I'm one of, one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Uh, so glad that you came to join us. And it's Christmas Eve. So, it's Christmas Eve, so what you're expecting is that we'll do a Christmas Eve sermon. Well, you've guessed wrong. Uh, we're actually going to continue with the series that we've been doing here at Sedaris. We've been walking verse by verse through the gospel according to Mark. And uh, we're going to just continue to do that. And one of the reasons we decided to do that is because although uh, Christmas Eve is a special service, uh, as a church, we do this each and every week. This is sort of our rhythm of life. We get together, we sing songs of praise, uh, we study the Bible, we study the person of Jesus. Uh, That's what we do. And so we thought, well, we know some of you are visiting or here for the first time. We want you to actually see what we do on a normal basis because uh, we'd hope that maybe you'd come and be a part of what we do throughout the entire year because we think it takes a consistent rhythm of life to really get to know who this Jesus is. And in fact, that's the name of the sermon series that uh, we're doing, it's, uh, or that's related to. It's called, we're calling the series The Most Important Question Ever Asked. And it's actually a question that Jesus himself asks of his disciples. And John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he actually records it for us. And Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And we think that's the most important question asked. It's a question Jesus asks of each of us. Who do you say that I am? And so we're going to be looking at that today. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 6, you can do that. There's Bibles in the seat back in front of you. You can also... Go ahead and uh, Google Mark 6. No shame in that. We'll just assume that if you're looking at your phone, you're reading the Bible. And uh, we'll also throw it up on the screen. But we'd love to have you turn there with us to Mark chapter 6. Now, as you're turning there, let me just give you some context for where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus, this, this really interesting figure, comes onto the scene. He almost explodes into history And he's been traveling village to village, teaching about God and the scriptures. He's been healing sick people by his mere touch and his words. uh, And he's collected quite a following. Now, just before the passage we'll read today, in chapters 4 and 5, here's what Jesus has done. He's calmed a storm simply by yelling at it. You know anybody that can do that? Then he goes and he casts out a whole gang of unclean spirits from a man who's been oppressed for many, many years. He casts them into a herd of pigs, and the pigs run and jump off a cliff. And then, in the passage immediately preceding what we'll look at today, Jesus goes and he raises a 12-year-old girl who has died just hours earlier from the fever. And he brings her back to life. So this is... The context with which we see the passage now. Hundreds of people are following this Jesus. They're following Him from village to village. They cannot get enough of Him. They're begging Him to come to their village that He might heal and teach and bring His power to their people. This is where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 6. Let's read it together starting in verse 1. Then Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown, Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work in that place except that he laid his hands on a few sick sick people and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And so he went among the other villages teaching. This is a terrifying rejection. Rejection by the people that Jesus knew the best. People who he, he had personal history with people that he grew up with, people that he'd known for 30 years, people that he loved, people that he desperately wanted to find the way, the truth, and the life that can only be found in himself. But yet they not only did not believe, but they took offense at him. This means that they were angry. Can you relate to this Jesus? Maybe even these holidays you'll see old friends and family. People that you desperately want to find truth and life and the way to everlasting joy. But when you bring Jesus into the conversation, when you bring up His name, they get angry. They take offense Jesus knows what this feels like to a degree that we never can. If, if you experience that this Christmas, if you're just trying to love people by helping them find truth in life, cry out to Jesus in your angst. He knows exactly what you're going through. In fact, this story of rejection was just one step in a long history that really went back to the very beginning of Jesus' life. In fact, it went so far to the beginning that he began to be rejected while he was still in his mother's womb. This includes his life in his mother's womb. Let me try to explain this. We just sang this old classic hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's a great song written by a man named Philip Brooks. In the 1800s, he wrote this song after returning home from a trip to Israel where he took a donkey ride himself to the little town of Bethlehem, and he came back and he wrote this song, and it's often sung with the sweetness and joy of the holidays, as it should be for those of us who worship Jesus. Bethlehem is the birthplace of our Savior, of our Lord, and so it's understandable, but if we really stop and we think about Bethlehem, this little town, This is actually a pretty sad day for most in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the hometown of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, and it had been prophesied in the Old Testament that another king would come, a greater king, a better king, who would fulfill all that God had promised to the people of Israel. He'd come and he'd be born in Bethlehem. He would be the Messiah, which means the anointed Savior, which is where we get the Greek translation of the Christ. And so they were anticipating. They themselves were pregnant with anticipation, waiting for this moment. They'd been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years. 
And Bethlehem jumps back into history when Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth 100 miles, an eight days journey, to little Bethlehem. The Messiah would be born. And they walk into town and they get snubbed. The emperor of the Roman Empire had called for a census and he told all people to return to their hometown. Now Jesus' father, not biological, but his father, uh, he was from Bethlehem. And so they went home to Bethlehem. And here's what would happen when you would travel back then. So it's a little bit different than today. It's getting actually more like it was with Airbnb and whatnot. Because when you would travel, there weren't hotels and things like that. You'd usually go stay with a relative. And if you didn't have a relative, you would stay with a stranger. And Jewish law, religious law, would tell people if a stranger came and knocked on your door, it was your duty to find them a guest room, a place to stay. Now this is exactly what Mary and Joseph did. And they come into town. And she's fully pregnant. There's no hiding it. And they're trying to find a place to stay. They would have started with his relatives. Could not find a relative or a relative that would take them in. Would have gone to a stranger's home, knocked on the door. Do you have a space for us? I'm about to give birth. And they couldn't find anywhere. Except for this manger. Can you imagine that? What that must have been like. They did not find acceptance and open arms, but silence and rejection. It's the same response Jesus will get 33 years later when he shows up at his other hometown, Nazareth. It's an extraordinary rejection. You're beginning to see these parallels between these two stories. This was the pattern of Jesus' life. Now you say, well, of course, no one knew that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah, right? Maybe if they'd known, they would have let her stay. Well, 33 years later in Nazareth, Jesus gave some pretty strong examples of his power. That he wasn't just an ordinary guy, and yet they still reject him. We don't know what would have happened had more people known what was going on in their town. All we know is that before he was even birthed into the world, Jesus was turned away. I I tried to think back this week what it must have been like for those people of Bethlehem when they first maybe read the Gospel of Mark or the other Gospels and they heard about Jesus and, and how people were saying he'd risen from the dead, that he was the Messiah what it must have felt like? The terror, the dread. That, oh, I remember when Mary came to town. Or, or I remember my parents lived in Bethlehem. Or my grandparents lived in Bethlehem. When they realized that, that coming to knock on their door that first Christmas night was none other than the one people were calling the Messiah. It gives new meaning to me. This verse, maybe you've heard this verse before. It's in the letter of Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 2, it says this, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Maybe even the king of angels. So what we begin to see in Bethlehem 
and in Nazareth, and eventually on Calvary's cross, is this pattern of life that Jesus willfully chooses, a life of rejection. He accepts that for our salvation. The 11th verse of the Gospel of John, another account of Jesus' life, says this, He, that's God the Son, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. O little town of Bethlehem, O little town of Nazareth, how sad, how terrifying that you missed Him. He was right in front of you. As I was studying this song during the week, I found that there's sort of a lost fourth stanza. And here's what it says. Where children, pure and happy, pray to the blessed child. Where misery cries out to thee, son of the undefiled. Now listen. Where charity stands watching, and faith holds wide the door. The dark night wakes, wakes, the glory breaks, and Christmas comes once more. Those are haunting words when charity stands watching and faith holds wide the door. For the last few weeks here at Sedaris, we've been talking about faith. And we've been saying that faith is not something you can just muster up by your own effort. It's actually a gift from a loving God who gives you the ability to believe. And indeed, you need the gift of grace, this gift of faith, before you can actually understand this Jesus, even if He's standing right before you. And in fact, if you look particularly at Nazareth, what you see in Mark chapter 6 is that uh, they did not lack understanding. In fact, they had more understanding about this Jesus than most. In fact, this unique inability to see Jesus rightly was specifically because they were so familiar with Him. And so it became perceived understanding. Of course He couldn't be. We know Him so well. This is, this is so important to understand. Let me, let, me, let me dig a little bit deeper here. Have you heard the idiom, familiarity breeds contempt? Have you heard that? It's actually a very old ancient proverb that goes all the way back to 500 B.C. It's, one of, it, it, it's found in one of Aesop's fables, the fox and the lion. And the fable goes like this. A fox had never seen a lion before, so when she happened to meet the lion for the first time, she all but died of fright. The second time she saw him, she was still afraid, but not as much as before. Then the third time, the fox was bold enough to go right up to the lion and speak to him. There's another fable accredited to Aesop, the camel and the people. And it's very similar. Listen. The first time the people saw the camel, the people were afraid and ran away, awestruck by her immense size. Yet as time went by, they recognized the camel's gentle nature and grew bold enough to approach her. Gradually they realized that this was a creature who was incapable of anger. Their contempt for the camel finally reached the point that they placed a bridle on the camel and allowed their children to ride her. These fables illustrate this ancient idiom. Familiarity destroys even the most terrifying of thoughts. 
reducing and appropriate reverence, and it often leads us to contempt. And for some of us in the room tonight, our familiarity with Jesus, with the Bible, with the church, has birthed in us a kind of contempt. Maybe this contempt means that Christmas Eve is now one of the only days in the year that you come. Maybe tonight is so familiar with the songs that we sing, with the stories we read, with even the message that I'm preaching. Maybe you're even thinking to yourself that you know what I'll say next. Maybe you're starting to prepare your heart for the call to faith because you know it's coming. Because you want to deflect that call. Like those in Nazareth, your familiarity has mistakenly become perceived understanding. Because you think that you know Jesus and what He's all about, you've become blinded to the greater reality that the living, resurrected Jesus who knocks at your door is here tonight by His Spirit. And He will lament like He did in Nazareth because He will not be able to do a mighty work in you if you reject Him. If that rings true for you tonight, I don't, I don't want you to hear me wrong. We're really glad that you're here. It's one of the reasons we exist. But we love you too much to just wait and see you next year. Maybe it's time to reconsider this Jesus. Maybe it's time to take a fresh look. And this is how you do it. This is how you start. You need to wipe clean the historical ties that you have with the stories and the songs and the text. You need to forget what you think you know about Jesus. And then you need to ask God. You need to pray to God. You need to plead with God. Give me the gift of faith. It might be a gift that you've never been given. Or maybe you had it at one time and now it seems to be lost. Ask God to help your unbelief. To give you this gift. So that, because you need this gift, so that you can open wide the doors this Christmas. This 2023 Christmas night. That you can hear the Gospel of Jesus with fresh ears. See Him with fresh eyes. And reconsider. So I want to do this very quickly. You could even pray that prayer right now. Silently to yourself. Well, not to yourself, to God. Give me the gift of faith. And then I want you to hear the Gospel again. And I want to explain to you this good news. The promise that God makes to us. The reason He sent Jesus. And I want to do it in the context of this story that we've been looking at today in the Gospel of Mark. The story of Nazareth, which is really a story about a man who was surrounded by all the people that he knew best and had never felt so lonely and isolated. That's the story. And this time of year, lots of people feel that way. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you're going to a party after this or tomorrow. Well, you'll be surrounded by the people that have known you the longest, that should know you best, but you'll stand there and you'll feel as lonely as you've ever felt. Jesus was no stranger to the feeling. And the Gospel story is in many ways about wiping that from the face of the earth. And here's why. Loneliness has its roots at the very beginning of the human God story. 
The Bible tells us that in the Garden of Eden, the first human beings, male and female, had perfect relationship with God. They stood before Him. They knew Him perfectly until they decided to reject God's plan, to do it their own way. This decision, this act of rebellion, created a deep tear in the fabric of all that God had created. And we see the first symptom of this tear, and it had never been experienced before. And it's the feeling of loneliness that's caused by isolation. And even though Adam and Eve were standing right next to each other, even though Adam had Eve just feet from him, even though Eve had Adam just feet from her, even though God stood before them, you know what they felt? Naked. Ashamed. Alone. And so they did what we do. They hide. And ever since that first decision to live with contempt for the familiarity that they had with their Creator and to give in to the temptation of the possibilities which are always inherent in the unfamiliar. Every moment since that moment, human beings have followed suit, choosing the possibilities of self-governance and self-love over the guiding voice of God. And Jesus calls this new and universal way sin. And we are born into this new way of sin and each one of us chooses this way for ourselves. And even though God is still as close as He ever has been, you cannot see Him. You cannot know Him because sin blinds you to Him. Now if we get really honest, this new way of Adam has not made joy and happiness the familiar human experience. In fact, what we see is that it has created new forms and new layers of this ancient thing called loneliness that first came in the garden. And it permeates our culture and our society and our families. This is the true familiar experience of the human being. In fact, God despises this so much that He has a plan to restore it. To wipe it off the face of the earth to give us back the relationship we always needed. He despises sin so much that He authors this plan even before sin enters His world that He might reverse the effects of sin and remove the presence of sin from His creation. And His plan has a name. Jesus who was conceived in the womb of Mary by the incarnating power of the Holy Spirit, birthed in Bethlehem, rejected in Nazareth, and hung on a Roman cross. Jesus was God with us. Jesus is God for us. And now listen closely because here is how God will accomplish this reversal and this removal of sin through Jesus. From the moment Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, as we said, He has been experiencing loneliness. And that is part of God's cleansing, restorative plan. Here's how it works. Just like in the story we saw today, we have just a glimpse of how this pattern works with the effect of sin called loneliness. In Nazareth, 
He encounters and experiences the full effects of sin enacting in real life, and he takes it into his person, this extreme rejection, this isolation, and this loneliness. He takes it in from those that he loves the most. And he did it again and again and again, and here's the key. There's something he doesn't do. Notice what he doesn't do when he's rejected. He does not turn that contempt back upon the people of Nazareth. He absorbs it into himself that it might end with him. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go back to Bethlehem. Those who turned out his pregnant mother into the cold and have contempt for them, he does not. Instead, for Bethlehem, for Nazareth, for us, he goes and he gives his life that sin might end in himself. And this is the pattern that began at birth and repeats time and time and time again until it climaxes with Jesus hanging on a cross. And do you know what He says to the Father? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He refuses to reverberate the sin which is poured upon Him. Instead, He receives it into Himself. And in his dying breath, he experiences an isolation and a loneliness that no one could ever possibly experience. When God the Son, who has been in perfect relationship with God the Father for all of eternity, in that moment, takes upon the wrath of God into his being, is separated from God, isolated from him for our sake. This is the pattern. This is how God fixes His world. He dies for us. He experiences loneliness and isolation for us. Jesus, once and for all, absorbed all consequence of sin, the wrath, the just, rightful, cleansing wrath of God. He absorbs it onto Himself on the cross, He absorbs death that it might be no more in His world. That's what He did. And our record of sin can be cleansed, can be wiped away, can be removed as far as the east is from the west because Jesus took it into Himself. And if you by faith trust that Jesus has done this for you. That He has removed the curse of sin in your life. That He has absorbed it into Himself. That He has died the death you should have died. And by the power of God, He has raised to new life. If that happens, you too can start walking back the history of isolation and loneliness in your own story, starting with your relationship with your Creator God, moving out to your spouse, to your family, to your friends, and then to your neighbors as you start to push back the effects of sin because you have the power of God in you through your relationship with Christ by faith. All of us have rejected Him at one point in our life. Every last one. No one deserves His sacrifice, but He gives it nonetheless. That's the paid-for promise of the Gospel. And it's wild. And it's hard to believe. 
And I pray that God gives you the faith to believe it. Because Jesus has done this for you. He came to Bethlehem for you. He came to Nazareth for you. He went to the cross for you. I've experienced this promise at work in my own life. I want you to experience it. If you prayed for the gift of faith tonight, if maybe you heard the Gospel fresh, maybe you've heard it a million times, and tonight something clicked for you and you heard it, then you, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the grave, then you too have new life and you can begin tonight to begin to experience freedom from that sin that has kept you alone. If that's true of you tonight, if even in this moment you're beginning to realize that it's true, myself and Pastor Ryan will be up here at the end of the service. We would love to talk with you and pray with you and help you take the next steps to solidifying that commitment in your life. And we'd like to get you connected to real people in real community that you might see the tangible effects of the kingdom of God coming into your life, that you might never feel loneliness and isolation because you're a part of a new family, the family of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your plan is big enough to include those of us, myself included, who have rejected You, who have gone our own ways, who have loved the possibilities of the unfamiliar and disregarded the familiarity that we have with You. God, for any of those in this room tonight who feel that way, that faith, that Jesus, that the church has become so familiar that they could not continue to let it be a part of their life. God, would you just strip away that history right now? Would you just make it go away? That they might, as we sing these next few songs, see Jesus in a new way, in a fresh way, with the eyes of faith. We pray that powerfully and boldly this Christmas Eve. God, we pray that you'd give us the faith to fling the doors wide open and that you might have access to our heart. Change it, Father God. Change it through your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. We pray this all in the powerful, wonderful name of He who was born in Bethlehem, King Jesus.